Talkers. Welcome to No Prize from God, Episode 9. No Prize from God features conversations about belief, unbelief, and everything between. Our guest today is Ryan Clark, Grammy-nominated designer, artist, illustrator, and frontman for the band Demon Hunter. Ryan is someone who I met actually about 20 years ago this year, when he was on tour as guitarist for the band Focal Point. I'm proud to call Ryan one of my closest friends, someone who is like a brother to me. I know Ryan to be strong, dedicated, honest, loyal, fiercely creative, discerning, patient, and kind. I could fill up the next hour of this podcast gushing with my overwhelming enthusiasm about this human being. Full disclosure, I've been the manager for Ryan's band Demon Hunter since about 2004, and I consider Ryan, his wife, their kid, Ryan's brother, all the rest of the guys in the band. Oftentimes in life, family can be who you choose, and those are all people that I'm very happy and proud to have chosen and and to have have chosen me. As art director for Tooth & Nail Records, Solid State, and BEC Recordings for, I think, a decade, Ryan was either directly responsible for or oversaw all of the packaging and related artwork that was associated with all the different records from all the different bands that were on those labels. Ryan is co-founder of the design firm Invisible Creature with his brother Don. Invisible Creature has done music packaging for Alice in Chains, Chris Cornell, Foo Fighters, Stone Sour, Throwdown, Sleeping with Sirens, Kendrick Lamar, projects for Facebook, Xbox, Chipotle, Target, They've been nominated for Grammys and featured in numerous design books and garnered all sorts of other acclaim. He's also the art director for the Seattle-based Belief Agency and has two other musical projects outside of Demon Hunter, Lo and Behold and Knives. Demon Hunter has sold around 600,000 albums across eight records and just this year had a number one single at Christian Rock Radio for six weeks straight. So here it is, my conversation with Ryan Clark. This is No Prize from God. pastor's kid which has in in sort of christianese in the world of christian bubble there's a lot of understandings and stereotypes and misunderstandings about what that means i think the the conventional wisdom is a lot of pastor's kids tend to be the most rowdy and rebellious and completely run the other way type of children um but for uh you know listeners who are kind of familiar with some of those tropes and listeners who have no idea what we're talking about right now tell me about your actual 
experience as a pastor's kid and, and how you think that that shaped who you were in uh, good ways and bad? Uh, yeah, I, I definitely see the, like you said, the tropes and the, the pitfalls of that live out in other people probably more often than not. Um, for my brother and myself, I think that there was, there was just enough of a balance in that regard to, to not kind of, um, push us, <laughs> push us really, uh, hard in the other direction. Um, we were, we were pretty well supported in the, in our interests and our, our desires to, to do things that were more punk rock, um, per se than a lot of the other, you know, families at our church or a lot of, you know, some of our family members, extended family members that kind of had the same, were raised the same way. There was a bit more of a rigid, um, model with a lot of our extended family and we saw that how that kind of played out in the uh in the lives of a lot of those kids a lot of our cousins and things um who have you know completely skirted any any sort of affiliation with christianity um but for us it was we we were never like the the hardline family like a lot of those other ones um it was still quite a bit more rigid than just our general friends, you know, growing up at school, just not even in terms of not even really morally, but more just, we had just generally more rules and, and, um, you know, I had a lot of friends that could basically be out all night and I had a lot of friends who weren't really, um, watched very much as kids weren't really like, um, guided very much um and that kind of had its own set of backlashes that kind of looks a little different <clears throat> for us you know we had things like that we had a little more rules about being out and how late we were out and who we went out with and where we were going and you know if we had girls over at the house like you keep your bedroom door open like just stuff like that that you didn't really see in in uh, your friends um in your friends lives but juxtaposed with our with some of our extended family we actually had it pretty pretty good a lot more lax than uh, than a lot of what we saw and it's it's interesting like on both sides of that coin like take our our just general schoolhood friends on one side and take our extended family that was pretty hardline on the other side i mean you get you get this pretty drastic um fall off whether it's you know hardcore rebellion or whatever it is on both sides it just looks a little bit different you know um one is basically because there is no parenting happening and so you just kind of go crazy and then on the other side it's like there's too much parenting so there's this natural pushback that happens and for us it was you know there was a there was natural rebellion that was just kind of normal you know we were boys we were obviously teenage boys are going to do that kind of stuff. Um, but it wasn't as, it wasn't as dramatic as uh, a lot of people growing up. I think we had, you know, kind of a, a good foundation in that regard. I mean, that's for me, just Christianity in, in general. Um, I think it's, it's pretty easy when you, when you put your faith in 
people that are surrounding you with those beliefs and those those outlines and those concepts when those people fail you i think it's pretty easy to just kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater despite what we're told about trusting people um but honestly for us it was it was it was really kind of an awesome balance that our parents struck in that regard. Um, they were super trustworthy. Um, they, they got used to certain things. There were certain things where they had a hard time with it at first, whether it was piercings or hair color or tattoos or the music that we were listening to or whatever. But there was also kind of just always an understanding that like if we were good kids, that some of that stuff maybe wasn't as important. Um, to really kind of draw a hard line. And so, um, yeah, I think we had it about as good as you possibly could in terms of a balance. Uh, when we're raised with the belief system of our parents and they, they do their best to install their values and, uh, you know, in, in this case, kind of a, a Christian worldview um, about right and wrong and, uh, you know, the supernatural and the personal and all of that. Do you remember a kind of a specific, a kind of a specific period where, it went from being your parents' faith to your own faith? Um, I've thought about that a lot and I wish I had, I wish I had like this really blaringly obvious epiphany to draw from. Um, and I don't really, I have very small, um, nuanced little situations in which I really felt like, it was something that was genuine to me, um, something that it was that was that was becoming real to me. But it wasn't like this moment of you know supernatural, um, you know. It, it there was no. I, I hear these crazy stories about you know I was paralyzed and couldn't talk and saw this light. You know all this crazy stuff. I no, I don't have anything like that. Um, the, the older I got, the clearer it became to me that the worldview, um, that I subscribed to just became more and more relevant and more real to me and more justified to me. Um, and so that the things that I, that I heard about growing up, I mean, again, we weren't in a church that was that was really hardline and that really came down on you for music and for movies and for the way you looked and things like that. Like I said, we had it pretty, pretty awesome. Uh, Calvary Chapel and its roots was definitely like a hippie church. It was a come as you are church. Um, and that's what we were pretty much raised in. And, uh, so there was an openness to that kind of like being your own person and, and, you know, looking the way that you wanted. <laughs> which really lent itself to allowing you to, to be a Christian and not be bound by those kind of legalistic um, ramifications that you see implemented so much in, you know, a lot of the Southern Baptists and a lot of the, you know, whatever it is, um, whatever sect of Christianity that kind of tends to burn people. Um, we didn't really have that. And so it wasn't... Um, 
yeah, it wasn't really a, a major point for us. Um, my, my worldview was basically just kind of strengthened over the years. I see the kinds of things that I agree with or disagree with coming to light by virtue of just the world around me. And, uh, those, those views are just kind of ever strengthened pretty much every day. Um, there are very few things that, that happen that make me go, Oh yeah, that's totally, you know, putting my views, spinning my views and turning them on their head. Uh, if anything, it's just, yeah, that's exactly what I would assume, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I have a, I have a, I have a very, I tend to have a pretty bleak outlook on humanity in general, as you can hear in Demon Hunter songs, uh, one after the other. And I think that's actually been really good for me. Um, I tend to think of things as, um, I'm going to assume the, the worst case scenario for much of humanity. And if there's a glimmer of light kind of between the cracks, like I'll be pleasantly surprised. Yeah. That's that. Uh, what is it? The, uh, plan for the worst hope for the best. Yeah. Exactly. And it's, I think that mindset has kind of saved me from getting disappointed by people and by humanity in general. Um, and it's not that I, it's not that everyone that I meet or see or hear about or whatever necessarily starts in the negative with me, but they definitely start like in a neutral territory. It's not, I don't have this, um, this trust that's freely given and easily broken. Um, I just kind of assume that people are going to let people down. And I think I've actually ironically been kind of a happier, more content person by, by looking at the world that way. You, you touched on something that I, I'm really excited to delve into with you. And uh, in, in terms of uh, the idea of a come as you are church and, uh, you know, kind of the window dressing or the artifice of, hair colors and tattoos and so on and, and musical sounds versus character and, and who you are as a person or, or what something's about. I wanted to talk to you about this idea of Christian culture, uh, particularly as it existed in the, in the 90s and, and prior to that, where, you know, there was a bit of a bubble where a lot of Christian kids grew up only able to listen to Christian music, quote unquote, you know, see Christian movies, read Christian books. And we're in many ways sheltered from the popular culture, or at least attempted to be sort of sheltered from it. And as a result, um, you know, we saw, I think we saw a lot of people go, you know, running and screaming in the other direction to embrace quote unquote worldly culture and, and ditch all the Christian stuff. And, and another, I think, negative fruit of that mindset was so much of Christian music and Christian movies and so on. And it's a problem that persists today, but so much of it was terrible, right. you know, where, where to, to go to somebody and say, Oh, I know you like the Ramones, but here's the Christian version of the Ramones. It's it's just as good. I'm like, well, no, it isn't. It's, <laughs> it's right. actually kind of terrible. Um, you know, I feel like living sacrifice demon hunter, you know, there, there's a handful of bands who, who really kind of paved the way for credibility within what's possible on the artistic side of someone coming from a Christian perspective in heavy music and so on. So I, re I really wanted to get in with you as, as an artist, first and foremost, uh, of many mediums, let alone a musician. 
you know, your, uh, your thoughts kind of on, you know, this, this dance, I guess, between worldly things, quote unquote, because I, I, clearly you've always taken inspiration from a lot of different sources. And I think people outside the Christian bubble would be surprised to learn that <laughs> the vast majority of your artistic influences, whether they're illustrators, you know, album packaging, musicians, aren't quote unquote Christian people. Um, and uh, yeah, I just as a general topic, it's something I wanted to, to get into with you. I'd love your thoughts on what insights you have into lending some credibility to the art that's made by Christians, as I think you have, and, you know, what some of the constraints and, and hangups are that are still in, in many ways kind of choking that, <laughs> you know, out of what we think of as, you know, Christian art, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I, I often say that I started a band because I didn't like Christian music. Um, that's kind of still how I tend to think about it. And we've come a long way, I think. Um, it's definitely not the, the wasteland that it was when I was really young and there were kind of few and far between even rock bands or metal bands or whatever you want to call them back then. But uh, the ones that you could find more often than not were just kind of this borderline laughable carbon copy of something else that existed. And, you know, that, that was a, a very true notion of Christian music for a long time. Um, I think, you know, coming into the, the 2000s is when things really started to kind of turn in that regard. And there started to be a lot of kind of crossover between like, who was a Christian band and oh, they, yeah, they used to be a Christian band. And now that, you know, the guys are Christians, they just do music or whatever it is. And those, that whole conversation is so convoluted and well worn. Um, you know, we could talk about that forever. I heard you mentioned before, it's something I've talked about too. It's like Christian music's the only thing that's categorized by it's belief system yeah, you know. yeah I actually hopefully i attributed it to you because i i stole that from you you said that to me years ago <laughs> <laughs> but yeah yeah. I, yeah it's the only it's the only you know you, you walk into a music store back when those existed and it's like there's jazz there's hip-hop there's country there's americana there's christian yeah. it's like it's the only <laughs> yeah the only genre that's identified by uh lyrical content or personal beliefs of the people making it and and something that I also I should I should rightly attribute to Jesse Smith something he said to me years ago, which was, um, you know, if I call a guy to fix my bathroom, and it's turn and it just so happens he's a Christian. It's I mean, is he a Christian plumber? You know, right. did I just did I just uh, hire a Christian plumber to, you know, and and it's Christians in a band versus Christian band versus. Yeah, like you said, right. that's a that's a convoluted thing that that, that is also a well worn topic, um, and I think it misses the larger point in so much as you know, Demon Hunter is a Christian band, and that that's a foundation, I think, lyrically, that's consistent and has never been shied away from. But by the same turn, you know, I still find myself in conversation with people and, and saying, yeah, you know. 
Ryan Clark, he did uh, album packaging for Alice in Chains, or, you know, he just worked on this thing with Starbucks, or and people go, well, what? But that that's not a Christian band. That's not a Christian kind. And the idea that in 2017 I'm still having to correct that weird perception, um, you know, and I run into it uh, myself also. I, uh, you know, a good friend of mine, I was explaining the whole concept for this podcast too. And we had talked about it a few times and this is no slight on his intelligence, but uh, by any means, but I remember telling him, uh, yeah, I, I just booked Dwid from integrity for the no prize uh, podcast. I'm so excited to talk to him. And his response was, Oh, Dwid's a Christian. I didn't know that. Yeah. And I'm just like, ah, banging my head into the wall. Like, you know, no, I, uh, <laughs> I'm interested in these, faith conversations right. with outside of my Christian bubble. Like, of course. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, even the categorization of Christian music, um, I mean, that's like kind of the, that's the problem, almost the problem to begin with that we even have that category and that we're like, that's even kind of top of mind for some people. I, you know, if I had my guess, I would assume that it was a category that was invented by the Christian uh, music industry in order to give people like a, a safe haven to go to when they go to the record store. It's like, here's the stuff that you can listen to and not have to worry about it. Yeah. It's like the opposite of a parental advisory sticker for parents. Right. That's exactly what it <laughs> is. Oh, well, this yeah. was in the Christian bookstore, so it must be safe, quote unquote. Right. And I think that, you know, that line has, has been blurred um, since those days, uh, which is good. You know, I, I, it's one of those things, like you said, you know, Demon Hunters never shied away from that. Like the, it's definitely like the lens that we're viewing the world through. And just by virtue of subscribing to that mindset and that worldview myself, of course, the songs are going to come through that way. Uh, the lyrics are going to have that. Um, but would I rather just be a metal band with, you know, something to say about the way I view the world? Sure, maybe. But is it easier to sometimes just um, fall into that just for the sake of people who need that kind of safety? Sure, I guess. Yeah, because it's it's not disingenuous in the sense that you're saying, yes, we're a Christian band. To people please Christians, it's just more, well, yeah, that's a, a component of what we represent. And if that's the simple yes or no question, that determines whether or not you're open to the art that's being created here. Yes, there's that answer right. for you. And and exactly. yeah, it, it, and it's unfortunate sometimes that 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 that's such an obstacle that if somehow more the that, answer was no, it would it would change someone's openness to what's being right. said. It's more that I understand the question that's being asked than agreeing with the fact that it needs to be asked. It's like yes, I understand perfectly what said. you're getting at. Yeah, perfectly said. <laughs> and and yes, uh, you know, for the most part you probably won't, you know, although on the flip side of that, like, is it intentional for me to inject some potentially bubble popping, um, you know, lyrical content into my songs for Christians that kind of tend to live in that bubble? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's always been kind of a twofold um, angle in my lyrics. I mean, you know, all of it kind of falls under the umbrella of like, I want to resonate with people. I want to meet people where they're at. And 
I want them to be able to feel like they can associate and resonate with what I'm saying um, and feel like, in a sense, they're not alone in their views or whatever it is, or there's there's an answer to a lot of people's questions or problems or whatever it is. There's that kind of as a umbrella over the whole thing. There's a, a need to kind of be a voice <clears throat> to and for Christians that don't feel like they belong in that kind of um, rigid, fundamental system. Um, and then there's also a kind of a prod against that kind of rigid system where I'm mindfully and willfully kind of saying things to kind of hopefully, you know, jar people a little bit into or out of this kind of uh, very blinded worldview or, or whatever it is, you know, this, this kind of like bubble is, I guess, the best way to put it. Just like living in that kind of safety bubble and assuming that everything has to, every, every thought about every thing in the world has to kind of fall under this very safe, very bland, very black and white um, kind of archetype. That's something I'm also, it's, it's definitely not like a focus of the music, but there's, there's enough of that to, to be noted. Yeah, and I think probably the most important thing to understand about the art that you create with Demon Hunter is that while it's a Christian band and that that's a foundation and that that uh, worldview, as you said, it's the lens through which you, you look at the world around you, it's not you're not you're not issuing holier than thou polemics from a pulpit via the band it's very real and relatable and very honest which i think is something that's missing from a lot of faith driven music um across a multitude of of religious points of view that seek to present something almost like an infomercial and give you this sanitized happy hippy dippy uh you know ned flanders version of things and from what i've seen and encountered and face-to-face conversations and the multitude of messages that the band receives email facebook twitter you name it people really respond to the authenticity about the things you talk about in the songs and the kind of raw self-examination, you know, whether it's a song like I Will Fail You or 1,000 Apologies or, um, you know, they're songs that are kind of armoring yourself against the world, like The World is a Thorn, um, you know, Life War. Uh, you know, there's a lot There's a lot of those those songs that are kind of about clinging to this this idea of, uh, of a savior and a creator. But a lot of these songs are about your own failings as a person and struggles and uh, you know depression and broken relationships and anger and I think uh, a lot of Christians and 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 non-Christian people alike are drawn to the band's music because of that authenticity that that's you know people who uh, who might who may live the Christian faith in whatever capacity they ultimately realize you know they recognize the truth and the struggle that you're putting there. And I think it's a relief even to hear like, Oh, 
okay, like we're 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 doing real talk now as Christians, like with right. this band, you know, like thank you because this is how yeah. I actually feel. Right. That's yeah. That's pretty much the gist of it. It's I can't I can't and won't write in a in a formula that that necessitates me injecting a a solution every you know second verse of a song or 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 if if I want a song that 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 just outlines the way that I'm feeling about a certain thing and I don't know I don't necessarily know what the answer to it to it is at the end of a day that then I'm going to do a song like that I think that there's there's a, a a relevance to a song like that for a lot of people. I think the the idea that some things are not just you know everyone's everyone is going to live their lives in their own way and everyone's going to see things their own way. Chances are there are going to be a lot of people that that come into some of life's trials in a very similar fashion is the things that I talk about. And I understand that. And I know that now through, like you said, a lot of the correspondence that we get. Um, and so I, I, I think it's necessary for what we do to, to consider a solution frequently, but I don't, I don't feel the need to blatantly, um, kind of blurt out what I think the solution is every song or every whatever. Um, I think it's, it's much more nuanced and it needs to feel more authentic and more real. Um, and if that's not where I'm at at that point, if I'm just, if I just want to vent about something, I'm just going to vent about it. Um, my worldview is, you know, is not changing just because I'm, I'm addressing it in a different way. But uh, the lens that I view everything with is always going to be the same. It's just, I, I don't want to follow that formula. You know, I don't want to follow whatever the, the Christian songwriting formula is because it's never worked for me. Um, and I know that it doesn't really speak for very many people that I associate with. And if there is a, if there is an angle of it where someone is not a believer whatsoever um, and they listen to Demon Hunter or listen to something that I'm saying and that they can truly resonate with what I'm saying because it's not the same kind of like, here's, here's the problems that you're having, we all have, and then here's the solution that you've heard about. Um, is that better? You know, <laughs> is everything okay now? Like that you know, I, I understand there's a place for that. There's a place for Christian bands that sing to Christians. There's a, there's a place for Christian songs that make Christians feel better about their, about what they feel. Um, I think there's probably very little of that in Demon Hunter. Um, I think it's more of a, if you tend to see the world the same way that we do, there's a good chance that this is going to resonate with you. But if you don't, there's probably still a decent chance this is going to resonate with you. And there might be a little sprinkle of something in there that you hadn't considered before. Um, and that's kind of like, it's not that we veil it, you know. It's not that we veil what we believe. 
in in regard to those kind of big picture, um, you know, tenets of Christianity, uh, we're actually pretty outspoken with those things. But we, I think, we pepper them in in a way that still feels like we're normal people, um, which has always been super important for me. Yeah, and if anything, I, I would even uh, almost counter as a counterpoint say that I think for a lot of Christian people. Demon Hunter's music does make them feel better about what they believe, but precisely because it's approaching it in such a real way uh, as a, you know, and, and going like, oh, okay, I can, I can be real about these things without having to shake off everything I believe or become a different person by admitting that I'm not always happy or that I feel broken or that, um, you know, merely uh, adopting some catchphrases doesn't fulfill me in my everyday life. Um, yeah. I think I think there are, you know, to say nothing of the fact that those are, you're talking about a lot of things that are part of the human condition, regardless of, of uh, where you, you know, put your faith when you close your eyes, so to speak. Um, I'm curious, you know, you talked about how the foundation of, of what you believe doesn't, change in the face of some of this stuff what's the secret to you know and it's a bit of a cliche right but there's the thing in scripture of uh being in the world without being of it and i i feel like you're a very rare example of someone who is always a representative and an ambassador for kind of, i hate to say cutting edge because it's such a cheesy phrase but you know, you're always very aware and up to date on emerging movements and art and different types of expression and different mediums that you've worked in and, and the multifacets of your career as an artist. And I'm curious kind of what the secret is to navigating in all those realms and, and consuming all those different types of media and being able to create things that are credible and successful and, and award-winning and acknowledged as genuine pieces of art independent of any of this sort of stuff we're talking about the bubble or whatever what's the i mean i know you don't have uh you know the blueprint in your back pocket necessarily but but just sort of some ideas of, of you know how you're able to to pull that off because i think it it's certainly something of a hat trick generally speaking it's it's hard to it's hard to really Put it into words. Um, I'm a. I have a very collector's mentality about things. Um, I I like to. I like to know a lot about subjects that I'm really passionate about, whether that was skateboarding when I was young, or punk rock, or hardcore, or metal, or design, or typography, or symbolism. All these kind of worlds that I'm really passionate about and I really enjoy I'm not really satisfied with like a 30,000 foot explanation or or understanding of those kind of things and so I I tend to dive pretty deep and I like to know and understand if I can certain facets and and worlds within worlds that are you know parts of those kinds of interests and um I've just always had kind of an obsession for counterculture things and subculture things and lowbrow things, uh, whatever you want to call it. I think that those things to me really 
really stood out when I was young. I mean, starting with skateboard culture and <clears throat> kind of segueing into punk rock. You know, growing up living in the suburbs and, you know, kind of being bored with the, the typical, you know, football playing, high school, whatever, you know, cul-de-sac living. You know, we just wanted more. Wait, we wait, wait. So you're, you're, you're not the famous football player, Ryan Clark? Because <laughs> that, that's yeah. what I thought I was talking to this whole time. Despite what uh, 25% of my Twitter followers think. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we just, you know, it was just that world seemed so small. And in the same breath, like the, the world that that has been kind of built by the Christian market, whether it's music, clothing, whatever, is also very small. Um, and it's also very limited. And honestly, it's also very derivative. And so I don't want to start with the derivative. Um, mm. Like you said, if there's a band that, oh, they're the Christian Metallica. It's like, well, yeah, but isn't, aren't Cheerios better than Toastios, you know? <laughs> yeah. So what, yeah. I, I like just diving in, finding out about all these different things. I mean, like if, if my if the bar for me is like best Christian metal band, it's like, that's, I already know that's a low bar. At least in my mind, it's a very low bar. <clears throat> what, what I rather be is gunning for being an incredible metal band period, because that's a much higher bar to me. Um, and when it comes to design or when it comes to fashion or any of the kinds of things that I'm into, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't really want to start down at the at the bottom. So yeah, ima imagine gunning for the for pole position, and I'm probably mixing up my sports metaphors since I don't understand sports. But but yeah, imagine being concerned with with being the best Christian art director. <laughs> right. <know>? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just yeah that you know, and I also think there's like there's something of an obligation too um, to be extremely excellent in everything that I do that's in the arts. I think there's a, I think there's a kind of a, a lot of people might think that Christians have a ceiling in that regard with, with the arts, whether it's music or visual arts or whatever it is. I think people kind of assume that it's only going to reach, you know, artistry of a certain kind of a certain level and I I want to create art that breaks through that and then some you know that that basically stands on its own amongst everything and not only says Christians are and can be a force to be reckoned with in any world of art but also I mean if we believe in a creator and we believe that creation and creating is kind of like at the central, um, is a very central concept to what we believe, then wouldn't we in turn believe that the things that we create and that we have the ability to create and that we were gifted with the ability to create, wouldn't those things be of paramount importance 
in in being an excellent um, example of what is possible. So in, in, in a lot of ways, there I, I feel like a certain sense of obligation, not that I need everyone to know that, oh, a Christian guy designed this or a Christian guy wrote this song. Um, I don't at all. Um, but if there is if there is something in there, you know, that changes someone's mind about about the potential or about the limits that they've kind of imposed on what they believe a Christian artist to be, then absolutely. I think that's that's a big part of of what I try to do every day is kind of push the boundaries of what that means. Perfectly said. That was uh if I had if I had an image in my mind of what having you on the podcast would would get, it would be that that last that last section right there. That's the stuff, man. That's great. That's something people need to hear and understand. Uh, you mentioned lowbrow lowbrow culture. Um, I know that uh, you know you've been you've been into tattoos, motorcycles, fashion, um, gallery shows. Uh, you know you you've a, a wide range of interests that, at at the same time, while being broad and diverse, are also all sort of united by this undercurrent. Like there's a an aesthetic and sort of a taste that you gravitate toward where uh, a lot of those different things, they fit together, if that makes sense. Like they're, they're, mm-hmm. puzzle, they're puzzle pieces that are complementary. Um, what are you, uh, what are you most turned on by lately in that regard? What, what's, what's inspiring you as you, uh, you know, as somebody who has made a career out of being creative and having to, uh, having to create all day long. Um, where are you where are you drawing from in terms of things that uh you know keep your blood pumping uh lately um and this has been something that's kind of been ever present for me um i've always i've always in some sense kind of had like a somewhat of a finger on the pulse of fashion clothing um that kind of stuff. But lately that's something I'm definitely, I feel kind of more drawn to and interested in. Um, and it's always something that I dabble with the idea of, you know, how much, how far do I want to go in that direction? Obviously I have my hands full, but my mind is always kind of racing, uh, trying to figure out what's next. Um, that's, that's a world that's always been, very interesting to me. Um, I feel like it's a, it's a very important aspect of every culture. Um, it kind of speaks on its own in, uh, in a lot of ways, in the same ways that, you know, skateboarding just in general or music can do. I don't think it's necessarily has the soul that something like music does, but, um, it's still a very, to me, it's a very like, uh, important piece of the puzzle. I think that's just kind of my aesthetic mind. Um, I tend to kind of see it all as one, you know, I, I, there are certain areas that I kind of place more importance on just because of a general, like a general interest for me. But, uh, I've always, I've always thought it was interesting when someone's you know, kind of a highly artistic person in, in like one 
or two realms, you know, and it's like they're amazing songwriters and they're snappy dressers, but like they're they don't care how their house is like <laughs> right, or right, decorated right. or or <clears throat> or someone's, you know, um a musician or a designer and they don't care how they dress. Like those things have always been a little bizarre to me. I've always I've always thought that those all those kind of pieces go together. Um so I know that's probably on the surface level a pretty shallow answer. <laughs> but uh I <laughs> know I don't think so. But it's yeah, it's maybe, something that maybe I, maybe that's because I'm equally shallow. <laughs> <laughs> it's something that I've always been interested in. I mean my wife's been a clothing designer for a long time now too, so it's it's something we share in common. Um yeah, so that's that's one world that I definitely am drawn to. I mean, design. I I've, I love design in general, whether it's clothing or or graphic design, print materials, um, architecture, things like that. So I'm obviously, you know, because of my day job, I'm I'm very drawn to that stuff as well. Um, but I'm not necessarily as like ear to the ground on that stuff as I. I would say I am with music. Music is like a much deeper connection for me. Um, and so there, the great thing is that I, I get to, you know, have my cake and eat it too in terms of what I do for a living. Um, you know, Demon Hunters had a good amount of success, you know, enough to keep it afloat for 17 years. And my design career has kind of followed a, a very similar path. And so... Um, I kind of get the best of both worlds. I get to, you know, essentially pick one up and drop the other off at a moment's notice and kind of get fulfillment out of both. Mm -hmm. But my, my, uh, if you were to win the lottery tomorrow question answer is always, I would do music full time. Um, Mm. it's just, it's just one of those things that's, um, like I said, it's a much deeper connection for me. And I've, I even, would always... even still, you'd be designing Demon Hunter merchandise and elaborate exactly. packaging. <laughs> you wouldn't be, I right. know you wouldn't be able to keep away, but yeah, no, I, but course. I know what you mean. Yeah, I would, I would, there still is a bug in me to do that stuff no matter what, whether it be for my own stuff yeah, or just be more, you know, much more selective on the, the kind of work that I do in that regard. Cause yeah. I do love it. Um, that's, that's definitely a, a huge point of fulfillment for me. Um, but yeah, I think it would look a little bit different. It would probably be more, um, you know, focusing on on the things that I'm really interested in or the uh, the clients yeah. that I'm really interested. Yeah, I love I love writing, and I'll never complain about that. But um, I would certainly write less about certain things and more about other things <laughs> if I won the lottery, as they say. Yeah, yeah. You know, in talking about fashion, you know, you uh, practically had to assemble a new wardrobe in uh, recent years because you've had some significant weight loss, which, um, you know, brings up an issue. Uh, you had a bit of a health scare, um, Mm -hmm. and here you are uh, as a relatively new parent. Um, you know, you have a wife who has a great career who you've been with for a long time. You have fans all around the world with demon hunter, this great design career and, and a lot of respect and credibility as an artist. And suddenly, uh, you know, it's funny because as, Christians and and particularly guys like you and I who are for whatever reason attracted to kind of the darker spookier <laughs> you know mm-hmm. nature of life and the world you know we're we're somewhat meditative about death 
And yet it's still when you're confronted with your mortality like that, um, it still knocks you back off your feet. Um, so yeah, if if you could walk us through a little bit about, um, what that whole experience was like and kind of bring in, I know you, you spoke about this in some detail on the documentary that comes with the most recent demon hunter album. Um, but if you could also kind of uh, bring us up to date on, you know, how you're doing now and and that whole thing. Yeah, yeah um, I could go on about this forever, so I'll try and put it in as much of a nutshell as I can because a lot of it's kind of boring stuff. But, um, you know, I started working as a full-time designer in 2000, and I spent, you know, anywhere from 10 to 14-hour days sitting at my desk and... Uh, I developed kind of a a lack of appetite for the most part just from being nose to the grind and working um, around the clock, <clears throat> building my portfolio and worrying about those kind of things, um, which basically had me skipping breakfast and lunch and every kind of eating most days. Um, it was super common for me over the course of years and years to just eat dinner and eat probably at like 9 PM and have a coffee in the morning. And that was it. And my, I basically, my body got used to that. And so I never really got hungry. Um, and you know, a lot of people would be like, that's not healthy. You shouldn't do that. And you know, I, I was just thinking, well, you know, honestly, what's, what could be not healthy about just not eating and, you know, waiting until I'm hungry to eat, you know, if I can, if I'm not able to exercise and I'm not able to eat well because of where I'm at or what I do, wouldn't the best solution just be to eat infrequently? So fast forward, um, to 2016, I started, you know, when I became 30 losing weight, which I would try to do every once in a while just because I did live such a sedentary life. Losing weight was um, getting a little harder. Usually I could just kind of eat a little bit better and drop a few pounds. It was actually pretty easy for me. But I've always kind of Get, floated Getting ready around. for tour and photo shoots and that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. T- tightening it up a little bit, as we say. Just a little bit. But it would always kind of flux in this area of, you know, anywhere from about 210 to 220. Um and so that was very normal for me. Anything below that was, you know, at one point, you know, I had a, uh, with some friends, we had kind of a little contest to see who could lose weight the fastest in like a 30 day stretch. And I think I dipped down to 200. Um, that was the lowest I'd been, you know, since like high school. And, uh, and that was when you were eating like three strawberries a day to yeah, win the contest. I was, just, <laughs> I was like counting calories, you know, I was only, yeah. I was doing less than. I think it was less than 1500 a day. And, um, anyway, 2016, I noticed I'd started losing weight pretty, pretty rapidly and I wasn't really doing much to lose the weight. And, uh, so I wasn't really spooked about it cause I felt fine. I felt great, but I dipped below, below 200 and I was somewhere in like the 195 range and I decided just to go to the doctor and, um, Fast forward to you have diabetes and, um, you know, I was just 
I had a million questions about it. I didn't really understand it. Um, part of the the reasoning um, that I was given was that my body, just because of the the way that I was eating, the the lack of eating, um, you know, my metabolism was just my my cells were essentially like eating themselves in order to. They're pulling from my body as opposed to pulling from the nutrients in the food that I eat. Mm. Um, and so that's why I was losing weight. And, uh, you know, the jury was still kind of out on whether or not it was like type two or type one because they're the two are very different, you know. Um, type one basically means you have to inject yourself with insulin for the rest of your life because you're running out of insulin and you will be out at some point. And type two basically means that you should probably lose weight. But in, in my opinion, I know this is different for everyone. In my opinion, type two is kind of like a, is something you can get rid of. Um, and I know a lot of doctors wouldn't really agree with that, but, um, and again, it's very dependent on how insulin resistant or whatever you are, but But almost like uh, it's a a wake up call to get your, get your ish together before you find yourself in type one. For sure. But regardless of whatever that was, I I just was in the mindset of like, no, no, it's not. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to have that. <laughs> and so that day, like <clears throat> overnight, I completely changed the way that I ate. I started exercising in the morning. You know, when I went in, my my um, blood glucose level was at an eight point seven. 6.0 is like kind of pre-diabetic below that is fine. Um, so it was pretty high. You know, some people go in like really crazy, like 12 or something like that. <clears throat> wasn't that high, but it was obviously not good at all. And so I was just determined, bound and determined to do it and to do it without medication because I, what I didn't want to do is go in there after they prescribed me metformin and, and, and go in for my second A1C, which is like a three month average of your, your levels and have them go, great. The metformin's working. Like keep going. And, uh, so I did take metformin for about 20 days and then I decided to kick it and just see if I could, uh, you know, make it work without it. Just exercise and and show up to the doctor and have them say the medicine's working and go surprise. Exactly. (laughs) I'm not taking it. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So I went really hardcore and I watched a bunch of videos and read a lot about it um, to the point where. Which is funny, not not, not to cut you off, but that kind of brings us full circle to when you were talking about your uh, when you're into something, you're in it and you want to you don't want what would you how would you describe it? The 30,000 foot view of it. You want to dive deep and yeah, no. And in this case, it's your life, you know, so of course you're applying that same thing to. uh, finding out every detail you can and approaching it from every direction. Yeah, exactly. And it, it was, you know, the, on top of all that, you know, I was a new dad. And so it was like, there's no way we were already, my wife and I waited kind of a long time to have kids and there was just no way that I was going to be like, well, I was going to add to that deficit. You know, um, we were kind of older parents, but I was like, I'm not gonna, I'm going to make this like the best case scenario for the age that I am. So, Um, I went pretty deep into the theories and and methodology and different ideas about diabetes, type two diabetes and exactly what's possible and whether or not you can get rid of it and what kind of things to stay away from. And 
there's kind of a blanket um, diet that doctors kind of put you on. And I was like, is that, you know, it seems like a pretty soft, like the diet that they're, you know, the things that they tell you to eat seems like a pretty soft solution. They're like, order a, order a small fry at McDonald's, not the extra large or whatever. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. like, you know, they, they want you to eat a balanced meal. So there's like still this, there's a, there's all kinds of stuff, you know, involved in that. And there's still a lot of carbohydrates and a lot of things that you could like do without. And there's a lot of things that are being substituted these days by other things that you can, you know, you can find cauliflower rice. Now there's, you can find certain things that are substituting other things that are now making it easier. I don't know if that's just like an old diet they need to revise or what, but well, uh, I, 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 I always say, let me tell you about being vegan in Indiana in 1990 versus being vegan in yeah, Orange County kidding. in 2017. Yeah. Yeah. The world I'm has kidding. changed for much for the better in that sense. Yeah. So I, you know, I watched this YouTube video, this Indian doctor on YouTube. Um, and that's his borderlined on kind of, I would say conspiracy theory ish. You know, he talked a lot about how much money the pharmaceutical industry makes on on metformin and other um, drugs to fight in what they do, and uh, just kind of the pitfalls of that. Uh, it's hundreds of billions of dollars, in case you're wondering. <laughs> um, and those kind of things, and just what, you know, like I said, there's kind of a blanket diet they tell you to get on. They don't say anything about other certain things, dairy being one, which this guy really called out as a major, kind of a major point. Um, and I didn't know really whether or not I had any reason to believe that, that dairy or any of these other things were um, proponents, but I thought, why not just go as hard as I could for as, for as long as I can? So for about four months, I went super hard, very little carbs, very little sugar, no dairy, exercised every morning. Um, I'd stopped smoking. I didn't drink anything alcohol wise for, uh, four months. Not that I drank much at all, but you know, just casually every once in a while. And, uh, you decided to err on the side of caution with that stuff with all of it. Yeah. And so I just went, I just completely 180 the way that I, the way that I kind of consumed things throughout the day. Um, I started snacking on things also just to kind of keep my metabolism going throughout the day, breakfast every morning, lots of protein. Um, and within four months, you know, I took it from an 8.7 down to a 5.6, which is an even pre-diabetic. Um, and the doctors seem to be like, Oh, that's great. You know, what I know is that it's pretty shocking. <laughs> right um, it's almost like the, the doctors well, the doctors have a vested interest in you coming in and saying uh give me more of all the things that you normally right. give right so i mean so I've if you since... come in and you go hey i'm figuring this out without you to some extent that's um right i mean a good doctor who's in it for the right reasons quote unquote would probably congratulate you and give you a high five but most are and you know yeah and in their defense they're busy and they've got a hundred patients and people way and, worse off and in their defense also most people just want the quick solution they want to be able to go back to life yeah as they like to live it and so most yeah. people i know this because we did a we did actually did a um a video series for type 2 diabetes at the place where i work 
um, most people just want a drug that allows them to eat the way they want, they want to eat. Mm. And they, they want something that just And that seems to be them. true with like high blood pressure and, you know, yeah. I, I, you know, much, much less severe and, and everything. But yeah, but I, I've, I, I have this phenomenon where, uh, and, I'm, and by no means am I saying it's good, but uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you before, but whenever I go to the doctor for a routine physical or, uh, you know, blood test or if I have a strep throat or something, whatever it is, anytime I go to the doctor for anything, um, they always check your blood pressure as a routine thing at the, be- at the beginning of the visit. And every time without fail, when they check my blood pressure, it's high. And it's not high, like, you know, terrifyingly, but enough that the nurse always kind of says, oh, I, you know, you're high and I want you know need to talk to your doctor about this and whatever. <laughs> and I've learned it. And this is going back several years. I've learned to say, you know what? Let's just check it again after the appointment. Uh-huh. And nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, it's within normal range at the end of the appointment. And mm-hmm. I always attribute that to like, Hey, I'm self to be at the doctor. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm A, I'm self-employed and it's I'm I'm going to the doctor at two in the afternoon on a Wednesday. So I've got all this, you know, I'm in just in that like like I'm in the middle of running a marathon or something when I go in. B, I'm usually at the doctor for some reason, you know, worried that I have some kind of illness or whatever. Um and yeah, and it's always fine when they check it on the way out. And the most recent time that happened, um, you know, and and it's frustrating because, you know, no one knows your own body better than yourself, right? And having experienced this over and over and over for years and years and years, I now set them up for that when I sit down that first time. Mm-hmm. I go, hey, whenever I come to the doctor, they always tell me I have high blood pressure the first time I sit down. And then we check it again at the end of the appointment and it's fine. Interesting. And the last time I did that, uh, the nurse was super skeptical and uh, combative, really. And she checks it and it's high. And she insists that I make an appointment to come back and deal with that specifically and whatever. And I'm, and I'm insisting to her, no, we just need to check it again at the end of the appointment. We do, but I feel like I, you know, again, I'm probably making excuces, but it was like she worked me up or something because mm-hmm. it was still, we, I couldn't get it back down. And she, <laughs> and she also wouldn't check it more than twice. And then she's just like, you got to come back. You got to come back. So this last time I made an appointment just to check my blood pressure, um, you know, go all the way there go to just a guy to check my blood pressure and explain the whole story to him. And he goes, you know what? Just sit here and um, relax for a minute. Sit there for a minute or two. First time he checked it. Totally fine. Yeah. And he's like, you're fine. You're, you don't have high blood pressure. You're totally yeah. fine. And I was I, like, I was like, can we just, can you like put that in the computer so that like, we, I don't have to do this every time. And, totally. but, but what the reason why I even bring this up is, you know, your whole experience, what it makes me think when I hear, oh, your blood pressure's a little high, I feel like the next step is going to be, here's some high blood pressure medication. Of course it is. And my thought is always, no, how about I lose a couple pounds and not sit at my desk so much? And you know what I mean? It's just like... The problem is that everyone else has ruined it for us because... They don't want to change their lifestyle. Right. But doctors <laughs> have, you know, have started assuming is that everyone kind of wants the easy solution and everyone wants to just go back to life as normal. They don't realize that there are still people out there that are like, no, how is, let, let's just say I'm willing to put in the work. How do we do this? <laughs> Hypothetically speaking. Yeah. Let's just say I'm a rare case. Actually, yeah. 
And not to yeah. mention that th- those habits and changes are, are, you know, better for our mental well-being, our spiritual well-being, longer life, you know, going down the list, avoiding other long-term health problems. Yeah, it, it's sad how much we've accepted as a culture that at a certain age, certain things happen and, you know, you medicate this way and you do that and whatever. And, um, and that's not to say that there aren't, of course, tangible, real needs for medication of, of all sorts for all sorts of ailments. But, but yeah, the emphasis is always on treatment versus, uh, prevention, let alone reversal of symptoms. Yeah. And I, you know, if I felt like at some point, man, I did all this work and it really isn't doing much or it's really negligible what it, what it's doing, then yeah, I'm, I'm open to it. I'm not like a hard line, no medication kind of guy, but I'm also very skeptical um, about this. You know, I, I feel like it's our parents' generation kind of had this like unyielding faith in in the medical industry as they did in the government and certain things like that. That I think people of our generation are starting to be really skeptical about those kinds mm-hmm. of things. And I just have a natural skepticism anyway with just things that involve humans. And so yeah. Uh, my default is to go, eh, can I, can I do this like in a more, in a more natural way, in a way that's like not going to have me just kind of hooked on a pill for the next year. And then that's going to segue to another pill because the medication that saved my pancreas has now damaged my liver. And right. You know, I, I know how it goes. Uh, and so if I can do that, I will, you know, if I ever end up with an illness where I need to take some kind of medication because it's just it, it's do or die and then sure that's fine yeah you know i, I realize there's a need for that too i'm not going to be a christian scientist about it right uh, doctor i'm feeling depressed and suicidal here's a pill by the way the side effects include depression and suicidal thoughts right yeah. What, what, huh <laughs> exactly. yeah and again that yeah that's not to be uh, a christian scientist about it like you said or a scientologist and then you know outright dismiss that stuff it, things some things work for some people and some things don't but you know, we're both people that like to crack things open and analyze them and explore them. And like you said, you know, a generational thing where uh, we trusted the government, we trusted medicine, we trusted um, our education system and a lot of things that, sure. that yeah. we, we felt were, was sort of, you know, in a lot of cases, a blind trust. You know, I, on a related topic when it comes to diet, for example, you think, well, in, the, in school, I learned about the four food groups. And, you know, who has time to reverse engineer and and crack that open and go, oh, the four food groups were created by the dairy and meat lobbying industry. (laughs) And the meat and dairy uh, organizations would actually supply educational materials to schools. And, of course, schools are like, oh, hey, thanks for this free posters to hang in the cafeteria and books to use in this curriculum and whatever. And. And it just so happened that uh, maybe there was an agenda. There. And, and yeah, I find that as an adult, there's a balance between, you know, wackadoo uh, conspiracy theories that are, uh, you know, to go outside and obsess over chemtrails right. in the sky or whatever. But by the same turn, a blind trust, a, bron- a blind faith in these institutions is completely dangerous and frankly, uh, extremely un-American when you think about right. what the uh, the foundation of what our society represents um there's also you know something you know just in reading a lot about sugar and 
those mm, kinds of yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I believe you might have even sent me one. My mom sent me a few. I think you sent me something on how in the '60s the uh, the uh, sugar um, industry basically paid advertisers to shift that health blame to the to fat, and so right. that's when we started seeing like fat-free this and low-fat this and like all that stuff. And fat is not bad for you. It's just not. It's actually essential. And uh, sugar is absolutely not essential. Um, <laughs> right. And so what they did is, you know, they started making all these fat-free products and, you know, kind of saying that fat, I mean, fat sounds bad, right? Fat is, makes you fat. I mean, it's just easy. It's right there. It's low-hanging yeah. fruit. Yeah. And the real issue was, was and always is, going to be sugar. Um, you know, I, I have even heard someone do a TED Talk about how Gatorade is and I hate to just <laughs> brand the bash <laughs> brand the bash but about how Gatorade is like the new cigarettes because it's like you're you're looking at these athletes who are burning like how many thousands of calories on the field and then you're going to drink a Gatorade at your desk you know, <laughs> right with like a hundred grams of sugar or whatever it is yeah. inside of it. it's like I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to drink a protein shake at my desk to grow muscles. <laughs> yeah. I mean yeah. literally the the obesity um you know the the death toll for obesity related to sugar is much higher than even the insane death toll attributed to smoking today. So wow. it's like you could even say it's worse. Um and I know that's getting that's getting pretty deep into that world, but that's just some of the stuff that like I started diving into and yeah, I. It's very it's very interesting. I, I don't I don't really I'm not satisfied with that surface level kind of. Okay, you got this. Here's your thing. This is yeah, you know. it's and like, it's good okay, and, well. and it's good to know, like you were saying. I mean, about about the sugar thing and the origins of where some of these conceptions we get about things come from. You know, I mean, and, and mm-hmm. the idea that like oh, the sugar industry threw us off of the trail. You know, I I read something recently about you know the and not to not to not to bash another brand but the famous uh trident gum slogan about you know four out of five dentists agree um well never mind the fact that that means there was definitely one dentist who was like hell no uh this is not good for you (laughs) um the way that they phrase that slogan it sounds like four out of five dentists are telling you you should chew trident gum when in reality like the study that that was based on it was actually more if if i'm explaining it properly it was, it was a little bit ago when i read this but it was basically like no they went to dennis and said here's a bunch of gum if someone is going to insist on chewing gum <laughs> you know which one's the least bad right and that's where the like four out of five dentists were like well i guess if you know that's funny d- our advice is don't chew gum <laughs> yeah but if you're going to and it's between these 10 i guess this is the this is the one i guess and you know, suddenly that turns into an ad campaign that makes it sound like dentists want you to chew Trident gum for your teeth. Yeah. And I grew up as a kid thinking that, you know? Right. Well, yeah. Have, of have course. Yeah, I'm so not going to brush my teeth. teeth this morning. I'm just going <laughs> to chew some gum. That's what four out of five dentists said to do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So today you are, uh, you know, it seems like you're, you've, you've, after going through kind of that extreme, extremist, pun intended, I guess. Uh, regimen to get things under control. Seems like you've found some kind of balance now where you're, you know, you're not on such a strict diet and 
right. might have a beer once in a while. And, um, you know, where are, uh, where are things at now? I've definitely kind of plateaued into like a, a little bit of a normalized, um, but still very aware diet. Um, there are certain rules that I have for myself that I won't break. I used to eat a lot of fast food and that is a rule that, um, I won't break ever. I don't think, <laughs> um, soda, I won't really do sodas. Um, so there are a few kind of hard and fast rules that I'll stand by. And then I'm still very aware. I look on every package of everything that I eat now. It's just kind of a, a thing that I do by default. I just glance at the carbs and the sugar and everything. Um, and that usually at least kind of tailors my decision as to what product I'm going to buy over another. And I'm still, you know, I have, um, these kind of rituals, like I eat eggs almost every morning. Um, there's just certain things that I've kind of learned to do back a year ago and I still do. But in terms of being as hardcore as I was those first four months about it, I'm not, um, I do need to go in and see where I'm at. Um, just to see what a more normalized diet, uh, is looking like for me. If it's something mm -hmm. that I should continue like, Oh great. It's, it's fine. Or, whether you've uh, stabilized or whether you're starting to tip back in the wrong direction. Right. Right. And you know, I, I would honestly be surprised if it would, if it's totally like down low, like it, where it was because I was going so hardcore. Um, and it was pretty close to that line of like pre-diabetic. So I wouldn't be surprised necessarily if I was to check it and they were like, yeah, you should probably go back, get a little more hardcore again. And that's the great thing is that I, you know, I'm confident that I could do it again. I could just, yeah, and that you're and that you're aware of it, and that you're not just uh, you know sliding further and further down without even realizing it. You right, know? and I know what to do if it comes up again. It's like, okay, I can do this. Yeah. So. And gosh, I mean, soda and uh, fast food. I mean, those are so huge, and those are and they're and they're harder to kick than people. It's like any sort of uh, addiction or compulsion uh, where you think, well, I could get this under control if I wanted to. And it's like that, that sort of, I just read something and someone wrote uh, literally yesterday where it's like, when you find yourself thinking I could get in control of this if I wanted to, that's your first clue that you're not in control of it. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, totally. And yeah, it's crazy. I mean, for me, it's even like, you know, compulsive behavior of constantly uh, checking my iPhone. You know, there was mm -hmm. a, uh, Nick, I said, Nick Kroll uh, had this bit. Uh, in his stand-up where he was talking about how, you know, just when he's done reading his text messages, seeing if he has a new voicemail, looking at Twitter, looking at Facebook, and looking at Instagram, well, now it's time to check for a new text message again. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah exactly. <laughs> and, and and again, unpacking things and, and reverse engineering them and looking into the origins of things. That's all by design, it turns out. Right. You know, the people who, run, who, who are creating all these things and, and running them uh, are very good at... Uh, making it so we feel the need to do that <laughs> so well dude thanks for uh making the time to do this sweet thanks man it was fun always love talking yeah figure uh you know much like the metallica podcast it's like if these are conversations i'm having anyway why not figure out a way to right create something with it yeah exactly this is a conversation that we would have at 11 p.m in that same room that you're in right now anyway yeah if we yeah. didn't do this so this is great nice awesome man and uh gonna have to do it again too you're gonna have to Absolutely. be a, a regular killer man all right well i'm sure i'll talk to you soon like i do every day Absolutely. <laughs> all right dude Thank later you.
about does it for this episode of No Prize from God. My thanks to Ryan Clark. You can find Demon Hunter online at demonhunter.net, on Instagram and Facebook at Demon Hunter, and on Twitter at Demon Hunter Band. You can find No Prize from God on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can find me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. No Prize from God is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. Please, if you enjoy what we're doing here with this podcast, leave us a review. Give us five stars and say something nice in the iTunes store or wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, you guys have been great, and I've been Ryan J. Downey.